tackling another one of the Q&A questions. I realized that last Sunday I said the goal was to do two on Sunday, which I did, for the record, and also to do two tonight, which I'm not going to do. As I was kind of unfolding the, the question that's before us tonight, I knew that we were going to need a little bit more time to do that. Not necessarily because I'm going to cover more. I just want to be able to take it at a pace where we can kind of absorb these, these concepts. And there can be questions along the way, of course. So if you feel comfortable raising your hand, you're welcome to do that. And then we can also talk at the end as well. But we're going to be talking about the question, what is predestination? So being our first Thursday night back in 2024, we are starting with a heavy hitter tonight. So why is this particular issue such a controversial matter? Uh, I want to offer a couple of different reasons. One is because it's misunderstood, I think, is, is primarily the, the biggest reason. Secondly, people try to inject their human reasoning and logic into explaining or understanding or even trying to refute the doctrine of predestination. So when you start kind of edging into human experience and the way that your mind thinks, then you start to run into the legitimate paradoxes that are in Scripture, and then you'll try to resolve those in your own mind, and you can come up with some, some, uh, some suggestions of, of how the resolution works that aren't actually true to the Scripture. But I think probably at the root of all of that is the idea that it, this particular truth attacks every single one of us at the level of our pride. We don't like to admit when we're not in control. That's a human nature experience. And then add on top of that, the cultural setting that you're born into is democratic republic. You have a voice, you have a vote. I remember one pastor said that if you grew up in a a government, just a human government that had a true king or a true dictator, you would understand a little bit better that there are people that are in authority that, that you have no say about what they do in their sovereignty. Now, that's the, the, the corrupted view of how the world works. But that's when we think about, hey, you have a voice and, and you get to cast a vote on everything in life. It doesn't work that way with the plans that God has. So you kind of mix all of those together. And people come out with some strange ideas about the truth of, of predestination. So my goal tonight is for us to lay some groundwork of what the Bible says about this truth. This by no means is going to answer all of the questions. That's not the goal because we wouldn't be able to do that in one setting. But what I would like to do is to give you some precepts to be able to work with, and then that will springboard into more questions that I always invite you to come up and, and we'll just keep talking about it until we hit the specific thing that might be something that your mind is, is uh, struggling with. And I will say that if this is a difficult topic for you, this is true for everybody. God has said things in his word that are mysterious to us. And he works in ways that we can't fully understand or explain. And so that's why we have to resolve it in what the Bible says. So we're going to try to cling to the text tonight as much as we can. So before we kind of get into our passage in Ephesians, I want to give you a definition so that we know what we're working with tonight. Maybe this is kind of a new term for you, or maybe you've heard it but never really thought through what does predestination actually mean. So I'm going to give you this, this simple definition. This is coming from the actual Greek word that's used in the New Testament, which we're going to see here in just a minute. But the definition tells us this. 
It is to predetermine. It is to foreordain. And it is to decide beforehand. So that's what the word means. But it's important to remember that the way that this word is used in the original Greek, it does not simply mean to know what's going to happen. That's, of course, part of it. But it means that there is going to be a sovereign act to make something take place. That will come back into play here as we kind of walk through some of the common questions or objections that people have with this particular biblical teaching. And if you're taking notes, you can actually jot down Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Peter uses a very similar term to talk about the coming of Christ. So not only did God know what his plan was going to be with the sending of Christ to be the Messiah, but he determined that it was going to take place. And so it's not just to know the future, it's actually to determine what's going to happen in the future. So in regards to salvation... This means that God chose or God determined who was going to be saved before time began. And so even that concept kind of brings with it some implications that be like, okay, now I've got a ton of questions, right? So I want to walk us through and, and ask some questions of the text and have Ephesians primarily be the one that answers that for us. So question number one is, obviously, does the Bible teach predestination? I've kind of already shown my cards by telling you what the Greek word means. But if you see here in Ephesians chapter 1, in verses 4, 5, and verse 11, we see this concept. Well, tonight we're verse 4. It says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So God chose us, who are the believers, in Christ. So there was a choice that was made, verse 5. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. So there's our word in verse 5, is predestined. He repeats it again in verse 11. Also, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, which works all things after the counsel of his will. So does the Bible use this term? Yes. There's a number of different times in the New Testament, seven different passages that use this specific word. But then when you start looking at the concept, like I said in Acts chapter 2, and then also the way that Jesus refers to salvation, for example, in John chapter 6, being called, that there are a lot of different passages that will talk about the concept, even though the words are a little bit different. So this is all over the Bible. It's all throughout the Old Testament, and it is woven through the New Testament as well. So the Bible does teach it. Question number two, then, would be this. When did God choose people for salvation. So before I answer that, I want to read the entirety of our passage here, just as you're thinking about this, this truth in, in particular. I want us to look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, and then we're going to come back and ask the question of when. So follow with me here in verse 3. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. So those of you who have gone through our foundations study, we've also hit on the concept both on Thursdays and Sundays as well. But one of the things that we have you look for when you're studying the Bible is to look for the who, what, where, when, and why. You're asking questions of the text. So this second question is we're looking for a timestamp. We're looking for when did God make this choice for who would be saved? And he answers that for us in verse 4. It says, just as he chose us in him before what? The foundation of the world. So God made this choice before the world was created. So if you kind of scroll back in your mind to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And when he created everything, there was time, space, matter, and energy all at once created when the universe came into being. So essentially what Paul is telling us through, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that God made this choice before the world was founded. This was before time began. So this is something that God did in eternity past. Or to say it another way, God has always had this choice in his mind. Always. There was a never a time where he didn't choose to save a remnant of people, which that's a humbling and overwhelming thought. God has always thought about his own. It's amazing. So it happened before time began. And now question number three then becomes, why did God make this choice? So you have this world of created people and God chose to save some and he did not choose to save others. So there was a differentiation. There was a choice that was made. And so our minds always want to know why. Why did God make that choice? What was his motivation? And this is where this particular passage puts before us a number of different things of telling us why God, what was his, what was his purpose? So as we're 
Again, going through our foundation study, we have you guys look for purpose statements, things that explain why something happened, a cause, a reason, or, or a motivation. So let's kind of walk through these, these, these verses here, and you'll see a number of, of purpose statements. Look at verse 4. It says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that, that's a purpose statement, right? And what's the reason? That we would be holy and blameless. So God made a choice to set his saving love upon a group of people so that they would become holy and blameless. That was his purpose, okay? Look at verse 5. Actually, sorry, at the end of verse 4. It says, in what? In love. So not only was this a choice that God made, not only did he have the intention of making the saved group of people holy and blameless, but he did it because he loves us. He did it out of love. Look at verse 5. It says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to, another purpose statement, according to the kind intention of his will. So God did it to make us holy and blameless. He did it because he loves us. He did it because he's kind. Verse 6, there's a comma here at the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6. So this is also a, a purpose. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So one of the reasons why God saves people is so that his grace can be on display and that people can praise him for being a God of grace. And if you are a follower of Christ, if you are, if you are saved, you understand that desire. Like you have, you have a driven motivation to want to thank God for what he's done for you. It's one of the joys of gathering together as the church is to sing together and to pray with one another, to listen to the scripture, which, which teaches us more of, of who God is and what he is like, because the response from us is because we're overwhelmed with learning more about the one who saved us. And so he deserves praise for what he's done. And that's why I, I always want to temper when you have this particular discussion around the idea of predestination, oftentimes, uh, if, if you're going just by numbers, like uh, people your age, maybe college age, it becomes like an academic study. It becomes like a, a, a debate, a philosophical debate, because you want to win the argument. And it's like, no, the whole reason that, that we're told that God chooses some for salvation is so that his grace can be on display. The fact that he reached down and redeemed people who did not deserve it, the response should be that he should receive worship. So the, the glories of his grace, the, the, the brilliance of his grace being on display should cause us to praise him. Look at verse 7 and 8. It says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, listen, which he lavished on us. 
You guys know what it means to lavish? It's something that's abounding. It talks about an overabundance, something that is excessive and overflowing. God had such grace and mercy on those that he chose to save is that he lavished upon us his his grace and his mercy and just learning about his his goodness should be abundant. It should be overwhelming to us what God has actually done. But we see another Reason, another purpose statement in verse 9, and actually Paul repeats a phrase that he said earlier. See if you can find the the repetition here. Verse 9, it says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. Anybody catch the phrase that was repeated from, from earlier? The kind intention. Oftentimes when, when people use theology to accuse God of something, they'll typically use this one to say that God is unfair and that he is a tyrant and how could he make a choice that we have no say in and it's just the opposite of what he did. God rescuing the souls of, of men and women was because he was kind, because he's good, and because he's gracious. Look at verse 10. We have another reason, another purpose. It says, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens, and things on the earth. So he takes all of the events that are happening, that happened in heaven, that are happening here on the planet. He says, at the end of human history, when all of this is done, you're going to add up everything that took place, the summing up of all things, and you, you equal it. What is, what is the end result? The end result is that Christ is the focus of all of it. And so when Jesus took on human flesh, and he came down to be the savior of the world, at the end of time, when things go back to an eternal state, when God has redeemed this broken planet, the glories and the focus are going to be on his son. He is the sum of everything. That is why he did this. Actually, one of the, one of the um, descriptions in the Bible of why God chose people to be saved was to present a gift to his son who purchased them. It was a, it was a gift because he loved his son and because of who he is and, and what he accomplished. And then finally, in verse 12, we, we get our final purpose statement. It says, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. And so again, we come back to that idea of exalting his name, of, of worshiping him. That's a lot of whys. That's a lot of purpose in nine verses. But as we listen to these things, and we're challenged by the fact of God making a sovereign choice of who is going to be saved, then the next, the next natural question becomes, 
how did God make that choice between the saved and the unsaved? Right? Ephesians is focused on the why, the motivation, the purpose. But it's like, how does he decide? I mean, if you guys have, if, if you're in Christ, hopefully you've wrestled with that idea of why choose me? It's not because you're more intelligent. It's not because you understood the gospel better than other people. It's not because you're more spiritual. It's not because you're less sinful. It's like, why did God make a choice to bring me into his family? And the reverse challenge of that is, why would he not choose somebody else? So how does God make that choice between the saved and the unsaved? So let's consider that. Paul actually answers it in two different ways. Verse 4 is the first answer. This is just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. At the beginning of verse 4, it says that God the Father chose us in Christ. Everything to do with salvation is tied directly to and anchored to the person of Jesus. There is no salvation apart from Christ. There is no life apart from Christ. There is no forgiveness of sins apart from Christ. There's no cleansing of your conscience apart from Christ. There is nothing good apart from the Lord Jesus. And so God made a choice in Christ to bring you to salvation. Everything is because of Jesus. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, this is how the, uh, the summary of the fourth gospel is stated. John chapter 20, verse 31. It says, But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. If you're not in Christ, you do not have life. And your only chance of having life is to believe in Him. To bow your knee before Him as your sovereign King, which we're going to see unfold more in the book of Matthew, as your sovereign Savior, as your Creator. It's all because of Christ. In fact, I know that there are some people that want to be forgiven of their sin, but they don't want Jesus. They want to get rid of their guilt over what they've done, but they don't want Christ. There is no possibility of that. If you're not excited to go to heaven to see Christ, then heaven will be awful for you because it's all about him. So it's all directed to Christ. So how did God make that choice? The first answer is because it's It's connected to his son. The second answer is a little bit more specific. Look at verse 11. It says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, what does it mean to take counsel with somebody? What does that mean? Just like, think about settings in life where we use those, that terminology. What does it mean to take 
counsel. Advice, good. What else? Say it again. To be taught. Yeah, to receive help and information. Good. You guys can think about the, the law courts. They're oftentimes called counsel, or they'll approach the bench and say, I need to counsel with my defendant or my client or whatever the case is, right? So they'll take a, a recess and they'll gather around and they'll talk about what decision do we need to make here, right? It's called taking counsel. Or you guys can think about it as counseling. You go to somebody that is going to be able to help you in a certain area of life that, that is wise to give you input. You guys use that all the time when you go to your school counselor, right? You're going to get help. You're going to get input. You're going to, to get direction to make a decision, right? So we understand what it means to take counsel. But in verse 11, specifically with God making a choice for who is going to be saved, who did God take counsel with in verse 11? It says that he purposes and works all things after the counsel of his will. God did not talk with anybody else. He didn't consult anybody else. He made a choice in his own sovereign right to make that decision. And I mentioned this earlier, but there are some who... When, they, when they're trying to reconcile this idea of predestination, and, and, and oftentimes it's even good intent. It's like, well, God has to be fair, and he has to give people the chance to choose him. What they will believe is that God looked into the future. That's the foreknowledge part. He'll see if, they, if that particular person is going to receive the gospel and because he knows the future, then he chooses them for salvation. The problem is that violates what Paul says in verse 11. God did not look into the future and take counsel with what you decided. He took counsel with his own will, his own choice. The New Testament term means to determine beforehand. Before you've done anything, in just a minute, we're going to look at Romans chapter 9, where Paul is dealing with these same questions with the, the, the saints in Rome. And these are the questions that people are asking. How is this fair that God would do this? We'll get there in just a minute. So God, in eternity past, before the foundation of the world, before time began, he chose who would be saved and his choice was based on his sovereign act of predestination. Now, if you're tracking with me, like I said at the beginning, this brings up implications where your human mind is like, I'm struggling, right? Yeah, welcome to be being human. Let me address a couple of the common objections that people have to this particular doctrine, or maybe a more positive way would be common questions that people have in response to this, even though I wrote objections on the board. So let's shift gears a little bit. Let's take a look at what people would often say in response to this, this concept of it being God's sovereign choice. 
So people might say, well, what about free will, right? I mean, God did not make us robots, which is true. Okay, we're not saying that we're robots. The Bible affirms that you have responsibility for the choices that you make. In fact, when the Bible says that the wages of sin is death, the term wages means payment. So if you choose to sin, you are getting a just payment for your rebellion. And you're responsible for that. But what about free will? Hasn't, haven't people been created with the ability to choose God? The problem is the Bible does not describe us as free. The only argument that you could make for people that were truly free were Adam and Eve. God set them in the garden, and he gave them one law to abide by. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they, in their free will, chose to rebel. And because they did that, it thrust the rest of us into sin. You guys are not sinful because you choose to sin. You're born that way. It's in your, it's in your inherited nature that you are corrupted by sin. In fact, the Bible describes us as slaves, not as free. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 34, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. It's directly from the words of Christ. Actually, all of this is directly from the words of Christ. But if you're more impressed with the words that are in red, there you go. You shouldn't be. Jesus says, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned. None of us are free. We do not have spiritual freedom. Sin has corrupted us. In fact, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1. This is put in the past tense because Paul is talking to believers who have come to Christ in salvation. But listen to what we were apart from Christ. Verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is your spiritual condition before salvation. What freedom does a dead person have? None. They are unable to do anything about their condition. This is why it's so urgent for us to tell others about Christ, because the condition is so unbelievable and corrupted, and people cannot set themselves free because of their, their condition. And on the flip side, that's why the gospel is such good news, is that God is willing to save people who don't deserve it when they hear the gospel and their eyes are opened. In fact, later on in John chapter 8, just a couple of verses after Jesus said that, that everybody is a slave to sin, in verse 36, he says, So if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. Jesus sets people free. But before you come to Christ, you're not free, you're a slave. So man is not free. 
In fact, we're dead, and the Bible describes it as slavery. I want to bring balance to this. We're not robots. You still make choices in this life that have great ramifications. One way it was described is that you can choose the way that you want to sin, but you can't break yourself away from your sin on your own. Next question. But I chose God. If you're a believer tonight, there was a time in your life where you confessed Christ. You chose to follow him. You started to learn about the Bible. You started to feel the weight of your sin. You heard about the good news of Christ. And so you chose to respond by believing in Christ and confessing him as Lord. And and all of that is, is true. But it's a response. You are responding to a work that God was doing in your heart. Romans chapter 3 makes it very evident that there is no one who seeks after God. No one. However, there are people who seek. The the nature of corrupted human beings is that none of us seek after God because of our sin. But when God does a work in your heart and you start to seek after him, it's in response to something that he's doing in you, which is the glories of his grace. Think about the disciples for a minute. As you read through the gospel accounts, you see this normal human interaction, right? Jesus shows up in his public ministry. They hear the teachings of Christ. They decide to follow him. But listen to what Jesus tells the disciples in John chapter 15. This is verse 15 and 16. Listen, he says, no longer do I call you slaves. For the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. They've been changed from slaves to friends. He says, for all the things that I heard from my father, I made known to you. Listen, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. There's a human experience where you start thinking about these things, you listen to it in a Bible study, you read it on your own, you have a friend that shares it with you, and then you start to, to, it starts to resonate with you, and you you ask the questions, and you pursue, and then you pray, and you read, and then you, you, you seek after God. And God is saying, you didn't choose me. I was choosing you. He makes that that clear with his disciples. And it's the same with us as well. God has to be the initiator. The reason is you are dead in your trespasses and sins. If God leaves you in your own condition, you will never seek him. You will never desire him. You will only want your sin and you will want to stay in darkness. In fact, I want to show you guys a passage. Turn to John chapter 1. It's such a unique first chapter of a gospel account because it doesn't really read like like a normal historical narrative. He's almost talking from a a theological 
statement. And listen to what he says about God's sovereign choice in salvation. Look at verse 9. It says, There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But, listen, as many as received him, he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Pause there for a minute. Who gave the right to believe? God gave us the right. Now, look at verse 13. Who were born, this is talking about spiritual birth, who were born not of blood, that talks about human lineage, it's not because of your family tradition, it's not because of your heritage, it's not because of who you descend from, it's not because of your bloodline. You were born not because of the will of the flesh, which means it wasn't a choice that you initiated, it wasn't something that you discovered, it wasn't something that you studied and found out on your own, it's not because of your intellect, it had nothing to do with what you did, nor was it the will of man, nothing from humankind can seek this out on their own, but you were born because you were born of God. It was his will, it was his choice. And the response should be here that when you realize that God is, is drawing you to himself, and then your response is that your eyes are opened and you're, you're grateful, you're overwhelmed with the fact that you are guilty because of your sin, and at the same time God says, but I have made the payment for your sin, and there's a way for you to be forgiven and to come to eternal life. Last question. But if God is so gracious and so kind, then why doesn't he choose everyone? Why doesn't God save everyone? We have to cling to what the Bible says. You have to be content with the truth that the Bible does not tell you everything. In fact, even when it answers a question, it doesn't give you an exhaustive answer on everything. A lot of times, the Bible does not address the why question, but we do get a little bit of understanding. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Paul is dealing with the issue of, of predestination in a different form. If you're really trying to get your mind around this truth, I would... I would commit to you reading through chapter 9 several times. Paul is, is a genius in the way that he anticipates a question that people are thinking. He'll state the question, and then he'll answer it. And he's dealing with this idea of, why doesn't God save everyone? Look at verse 18. This is so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Get a little 
let that sink in a little bit. That's a difficult verse. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You guys remember the incident with Pharaoh in Exodus? It says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sovereignty. This is the king of the universe. This is a, God, how could you do that? This is what Paul's initial, when he's starting to talk this way, he knows that that question is coming. How could a loving God harden people? Look at verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? The, the human reasoning is, God, if you make the choice, if you harden people, and it's, it's your sovereign decision, then why am I at fault? Because I can't do anything to change my condition. This was your choice. Why are you condemning me for something that I have no control over. That's what they're asking. How can you still find fault with me if this is your decision? What's the answer? Verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel of honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. When we start to feel ourselves pulling toward that natural human tendency to say, God, how can this be fair? You need to go back to Romans chapter 9 and remind your flesh, who are you, O oh man, that questions the goodness of God? He is the sovereign one. We are not. In fact, the better question would be, why did God save anybody? Why did God sacrifice his son to redeem anyone? Because nobody deserves salvation. And so tonight, if you are in Christ, your heart is rejoicing over this because on the one hand, you're like, why would you choose me? I don't understand, but God, thank you for drawing me to life, to eternal life for setting me free from my sin. And if you're here tonight and you're listening to this and, and if you haven't come to Christ, then my challenge to you would be to listen to the book of Hebrews, verse three, excuse me, chapter three, verse 15. It says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. If you feel a a a guilt over your sin, a conviction over the things that you're hearing, that you know that if you stand before Christ, that you will not enter into his presence in eternal life. If you hear that tonight and you need to be saved, the Bible is just as adamant to say, 
anyone who believes can come to Christ. Call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. If you're responding to his, his pricking of your conscience, then don't ignore that. Because if you allow your heart to be hardened, then you won't respond. So don't ignore that. But if you have come to salvation, then be grateful for the kind intention of his will. The Bible tells us that we're responsible for the choices that we make. The Bible says, seek God while he may be found. The Bible tells us as his followers to preach the gospel to everybody. We don't know who God has chosen, but he's told us to preach to everyone. He's told us to compel them to come. So we should have a heart for the lost. And finally, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. If you're not sure where you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ, then you need to be in your Bible constantly until you find out where you are. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So come to the word, listen to it, cry out to God, confess your sin, tell him you don't understand, but cry out. Because God loves to save sinners. I'd mentioned before that this, I'm, I'm trying to lay the foundation of the concept tonight. And this probably brings up a lot of very specific questions. And I invite you, if you have them, come up and talk to me and we'll just keep going. I love it. I really would enjoy doing that. We can talk about some nuances, some specific questions that you might have. But guys, it has to be resolved in what the Bible says. It can't be answered with human logic because it's beyond our logic. God says anyone who comes can be saved, but no one can come on their own. How do those two exist? The Bible tells us they're both true. And so we cling to what is true. But come and ask questions. We'd love to help you if you have more. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder tonight of the sovereignty that you possess Father, our desire is not to question you. Help us not to accuse you of being unfair. But for those who are your children, Father, we're, we are overwhelmed with your goodness. Father, there is nothing in me that would make you choose me. It's for the, the praise of the glories of your grace. And so, Father, I pray for these young scholars as well as they read and they wrestle and they try to answer questions, let them resolve it in the text. So thank you that your word does not shy away from things that are difficult, but give us understanding. Help us to handle the word accurately, we pray. If there's anybody here tonight that has heard the voice of, of, of Christ and, and the call for the gospel and they're not sure where they're at, help them not to be settled until they're they're for sure have been forgiven of their sin. And so, Father, just work in their, their mind and their conscience tonight. Give us boldness to preach the gospel to those around us with love and consistency and pray for you to open up the eyes of the lost. And so, Lord, continue to do that work around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.